Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Geared for Growth. This week we have another special guest for you, Paul Sontag. Paul runs Aquas Property Buyers, a buyers agency on the lower north shore of Sydney that specialises in investment properties in Australia's complete market, but specifically Sydney and Brisbane at the moment. We have a chat to Paul about his investing philosophy, about investing based on yield curves, about creating instant equity with renovations, and, and everything that goes into what he does as a buyers agent. Without further ado, here is Paul. Paul Sontag, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Now, just so we can get a bit of a background into yourself, um, who are you exactly and what do you do? Cool. Uh, I'm a buyer's agent. I run a boutique buyer's agency out of the lower north shore of Sydney. And we help primarily, uh, well, property buyers, but primarily investors in securing, yeah, what we feel are great investment options um, Australia-wide. But at the moment, we're primarily targeting Sydney and Brisbane. Beautiful. And let, let's have a little bit of dirt on you. What what posters did, posters did you have on the bedroom wall as a kid? As a as a child, um, they uh, actually had a poster. First ever poster was of a Ferrari Testarossa. Nice, nice. Uh, beautiful, beautiful red, uh, yeah, motor vehicle that was um, on my wall pretty much for my whole childhood, and then. Uh, as I got a little bit older, uh, I was a big Van Damme fan, so um, a few Van Damme movie posters. <laughs> nice, nice, yeah. Any particular standouts? Yeah. Kickboxer was a, was a big one amongst so, my mates. So Kickboxer was big. Um, Bloodsport was a favourite, and then uh, I, don't, I didn't actually like the movie as much, but I loved the poster of Time Cop. Oh, yeah. It's a horrible, <laughs> horrible... Uh, no, 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 sorry, not Time Cop. It was Hard Target. Really oh. good poster, but uh, not the best movie. But uh, he's older. His older things, what was it, Double Impact and, and Bloodsport, I think they were my two favourite movies, but anyway, we, uh, we digress. <laughs> awesome. Um, how, how did you get started in property and what was your first investment? Right, uh, so I grew up with real estate. My old man kicked off as a real estate agent and then got into property developing and he sort of ended up being one of the largest independent property developers in Perth. Uh, so I grew up on development sites, building sites. I'm led to believe that he used to take me along to his home opens when I was an infant to help with the sales process. <laughs> right. Uh, you you so, were part um, of the pitch where you get, get the cute little I'm, kid in there and uh, you know exactly. overcome the objections. So I know it's quite smart. I'm uh, <laughs> hope, hoping to implement, implement that myself in the future. And the uh, yes, yeah, so I just grew up with it, and then. I wanted to. I bucked the trend, went to university and studied uh, science. But as soon as I graduated, I then went and did my real estate licensing, uh, won my sales course, and got stuck into real estate sales at 20 years of age. So I bought my first property two years later. Uh, I was selling a land estate for a large Australia-wide property developer, and uh, yes, yeah, so I was selling the land estate and bought a block of land in one of the earlier stages which was great in a rising market. Meanwhile, I was helping drive the price up with sales and yeah, sort of bought that at 22 and sold it a year later. I think bought it for 123000 and sold it for 165000 That's not a bad and then way to get started. It wasn't a bad way. And then um, used that profit along with sort of savings from uh, what work I was doing to then buy my first house at 23 for 440000 and that was literally the moment, uh, the, yeah, the same month that the property boom of Perth really took off. So um, I think we saw about 46% growth within a 12-month period, and I'd luckily just uh, 
bought this property in that first month, so it was a wonderful start. Yeah, well, and then you, spent. You've got fantastic timing, obviously. So I just yeah, good, a lot of luck there. So um, yeah, and spent a hundred thousand renovating that, and I think within four years had it valued by the bank at nine thirty. So generated hundreds of thousands in equity in the first one, and yeah, it was an amazing, amazing start. I mean, yeah, that, that is a fantastic way to, to, to get things kicked off. How important do you think that sort of first play is for, for property investors? Obviously, that one's kind of set you up to, to you know, choose your own adventure in a way, isn't it? Yeah, but then it, it depends on what you do with it. So I, um, I guess certainly would love to know now what I, you know, no, now what I, um, if I could apply that to what would be what twelve years ago, uh, but yeah, look, it was a great way to get started. But then knowing what I know now, to be able to leverage off that and get into more, you know, cash flow neutral investments, and then be able to leverage again and just build a build a portfolio. But I wasn't aware of any of that um, at that time, so I just sort of parked it, stuck with that one property, and then I ended up moving overseas for for five years working and traveling and yeah certainly in hindsight didn't didn't leverage off that first investment anywhere near as well as i could have but this is all the this is part of the game of life learning the uh learning the rules and also learning from your mistakes yeah absolutely it is now just um just getting to to some of your uh i guess your your bio you're you're a founder of of aquas property buyers you've You've been in the game for over 15 years. MBA, which slides in there somewhere next to the science degree. We'll, we'll, we can talk about how that sort of helps you along in, in the industry that you're in. And um, you also had a sales and marketing role in, um, in an agency in, in London as a manager as well. So you've got a, a pretty diverse background. So yeah, you know, I've been, um, been fortunate with my career. I started out in, in sales. I think it was six or seven years in Perth. Uh, initially and then moved overseas with it but um, was also uh, yeah wanted wanted an adventure and to, to have a bit of fun I just saw it as an opportunity to to get away and travel otherwise if I didn't I'd be I'd be stuck in my career in in Perth for you know forever potentially so took the opportunity and, and it was great having that five years away to work with work with some really good property developers in in Canada and in Spain um, yeah in England it was a good exposure into the the sales market there trying to sell uh, we were selling um, some uh, property from yeah from Australia to um, English expats but yeah very very tight market at the time and then yeah finished off with doing my MBA and then moving back to Australia and starting Aquas here you are now here we are now, exactly your, right. Um, your, your Twitter profile describes you as a, as a property pundit and a lover of the finer things in life. What, what poisons are we talking about, Paul? So, well, I, yeah, finer things can be, I guess, taken one of two ways. I'm not a, uh, um, I, I do like the, uh, I guess the, the finer things would be more the red wine. I'm a um, lover of red wine. Uh, but then I'd also... It's, a, I guess, a broad explanation of the finer things, but it's more based around experiences. So I guess the finer experiences, and they're not the, not necessarily the most classical or most uh, most expensive, uh, but just what I feel is, you know, something that really sort of knocks the senses back. So, you know, if it's the opportunity to, you know, my wife and I don't go and do sort of typical beachside holidays for a week. We'd prefer to strap on our backpacks and 
and tackle a hike in in South America or through you know Cambodia and Vietnam and things like that. So yeah, I, I see them as the finer things in life, being able to appreciate the the finer cultures and finer experiences that the world has to offer. Yeah, well, everyone gets to have their own sort of definition of that, and I, I certainly chatted to a, a few people that have got um, you know quite a bit of wealth behind them, and and they rate experiences you know well above things. So you you're well and truly uh, doing some good living there. So yeah, yeah. Now you you specialize in blue chip investments. What what defines blue chip when it comes to property? Uh, I use the past a lot to try and appreciate how things might look in the future and no one's got a crystal ball of where things are where things are going, but looking at how past performances have been for um for suburbs and then you know just just keeping it simple so looking at historical growth rates to see how suburbs have performed over the last 20 or 30 years and you know typically those suburbs that are closer to the city have performed better hence why your median house prices are are higher closer to the center so just trying to leverage off that and get closer and closer to major cbds not too close with the oversupply of of properties in a lot of the the cbds currently And then, um, and then, so you know, whether we're looking at apartments, trying to avoid any areas of oversupply. Meanwhile, tapping into one of the best performing suburbs over the last sort of twenty year periods, we'd, we'd define them as, as blue chip suburbs. And then in the housing market, we want to be, we don't want to be. Yeah, it's great if you can buy closer and closer, but then the prices that you're paying versus the yields that you'd be generating just don't warrant the don't warrant the the purchase so you know in some cities we'll then have to push out a little bit further but yeah never further than sort of 15 16 kilometers from the city so you know for the yeah so, so you're looking at i guess a, a sweet spot between the potential for capital growth and and rental yield you sort of referenced um you know in our conversation off air that you you know you, you like to focus on sort of neutrally geared uh, a property so is that part of the approach so uh well um capital growth is the primary driver and then I just, especially for younger investors or, you know, first or second time investors to get into their first property and if it's costing them $200 a week shortfall because, you know, you've got this, uh, you know, huge difference in repayments versus the, the rental return or the yield yeah. solely because you've just seen this explosive growth in the last two or three years in Sydney, for example, um, that's difficult to then get them off the ground into their second property. But if we can buy earlier in the growth phase in another city where we're buying a house with a meeting, you know, with a yield of say four and a half percent and it's costing them maybe fifty to eighty dollars a week. Uh, and then after tax it's costing them next to nothing. But then they're also getting some growth over the next year or two and puts them them in a position to borrow against and, and buy again and again and again. Um, that's where we can see some power in what we do as opposed to them just sort of wrapping up all their funds in one property and for it to be stuck there for potentially years. Yeah, and obviously equity is, is the way out of that situation, and, and, and you do sort of state that um, you know you, you have a goal for your investors to have several properties. Um, the, the stats aren't really sort of backing that up. I mean, somewhere around about 15,000 investors have six or more properties, the, the vast majority only have one. Why do you think this is the case? Uh, quality of investment. Right. So there's a lot of, a lot of companies out there that are pushing or spruiking um, investments, obviously, uh, but they're drivers are from getting paid by developers, these exorbitant um, sales commissions. So 
they're not trying to fight and find the best possible investment for their clients. They're just trying to make sales. Mm. So when you've got the huge volume of those transactions occurring and you've got young first-time investors or self-managed super fund investors buying these very average investments, there's no reason why they're going to go and buy a property two, three, or four because they don't have the ability to do so. You've got groups that are generating, I've heard um, sales commissions up to $55,000 on a $450,000 house and land package. Wow. So, you know, what's the true value of that property? Well, any of us can say it's definitely sub 400. So, you know, you've got many, many years to wait for your $450,000 purchase price to actually see the value of that property get to a level that matches what you paid for it. Yeah. So you lose five, six, seven, eight years, you maybe sell at a loss, are you going to go and invest again? Of course not. Yeah. Exactly. So it's all down to the, in my eyes, it's down to the quality of investment. If you can buy well at the start, buy well under the median house price of a suburb, especially when you're buying, yeah, whether it be houses or units, if you're buying well under the median, and then if you can manufacture some growth through renovation, um, then you're going to be able to put yourself in a position to invest again, hopefully within a year or two. And that's the, that's it's, it's all about buying well. And, and there is a temptation, I guess, if you've got a property that's underperformed in the long term and then suddenly you can see that it has you know, hit that point of the market where it's, 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 it's a positive investment, there is a bit of a temptation to sort of lock in that profit, isn't there? And I mean, that's not a great way to, to generate long-term wealth. So No, not at all. And it's just, um, it's also just avoiding the, the areas of the of high supply. So whether it's you know off plan apartments in centres that have got hundreds, if not thousands, coming out of the ground at the same time, or these house and land, you know propositions that have just got you know hundreds, if not thousands, of land lots off the back of it. If you've got this endless supply of property, then how are you going to generate any growth? And, so and, and that's a that's a big factor, isn't it? I mean, supply and demand. It sounds pretty simple, but that's that's really the driving force between. You know, behind everything, uh, and 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 making sure that there is a, a limit to the supply is is one of the fundamentals of of, of investing in in the right area, isn't it? Oh, everything comes back to basic economics, and as they say, you know, the the, the best things in life are the simplest. If you can keep this simple, I think you'll you, you'll perform a lot better than trying to overthink things and overanalyze and and just keep it simple. And if you can buy into markets that have got much higher demand than they do of supply, then Fantastic. Whether it be rentals or ideally in the sales market, you, you're going to see a, an increase in price. It sounds pretty. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, that's but that's the thing. Like if you but then people see the shiny new things or the brand new apartments or the brand new homes and the you know oh, you know much higher depreciation elements as you're obviously very familiar with, Mike. Yeah. And the but then they get caught up in that shiny new investment and not realize that there's just a tract of another thousand blocks of land that they're going to develop over time and you know, the, the, the potential for growth is just not there. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, so. we, we see that a lot and, and I do want to talk about the emotional side of investing and you know, depreciation is a good example. I mean, we, we love depreciation, of course, if, if, if that's even possible. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty dry topic, but you know, I mean, even though that's our bread and butter, we certainly wouldn't recommend someone purchasing an investment because it has great depreciation. It's just one component of the property, and and in 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 all honesty, it's it's a pretty small component of the property when when you're considering the capacity for capital growth. Oh, without a doubt. So, you know, when just making the comparison of a you know five hundred thousand dollar purchase, and you know if you're generating 
twelve, fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars in depreciation in a year, which which might be possible compared to something that's you know maybe thirty, forty years old, and you're only generating a fraction of that. But in that same year, you're able to generate thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars in growth. Um, I know where I'd prefer to be parking my money. Yeah, it suddenly becomes pretty insignificant. I want to have a, a chat about your um, your agency. So, so Aquis is is the name of, of your, your property buyers agency, and it's derived from the word aqua. And you reference this on your website and, and and fluidity. So, the fluidity of water as part of your approach. Now, this is some pretty esoteric stuff. I, I want to get to the bottom <laughs> of, of of how that sort of relates to what you do. Yeah, well, the biggest there's fluidity and also transparency. So the yeah, just looking at the nature of water in the sense that yeah, the transparency is very appealing to me or to us in that we yeah we're very transparent in what we do. We do what we say we're going to do, and we're you know we've got our values behind and our morals and ethics behind everything that we do. Uh, so we're very big on transparency, and then the fluidity is more around not just getting set in one market, you know, much like Bruce Lee's famous quote, don't get set in one form, build your own and let it grow, be like water. So we try and build our own firm, our own firm and move with the markets. So we're not just stuck to investing in one particular suburb in Sydney, but we do monitor all the markets Australia-wide and, and try and realise great investment opportunities, you know, across the country. Awesome. That's a, a pretty good uh, quote from, from Enter the Dragon. That sounds like it could be a poster as well of yours. <laughs> oh, maybe I'd rather not say. <laughs> now, um, your your website hints at the fact that that future generations may need assistance from their parents to enter the the property market. Was, was this an, an intentional point that you're making, or, or is it just, I guess, a reference to to the, the problems of affordability? Uh, no, it's more a long term perspective. Like if you. So the Sydney housing market's gone up on average 7.5% year on year over the last 20 years. Um, and even actually if you extrapolate that out over the last 35 years, it's still achieved 7.5%. Yeah. Uh, and, but using that if you to project out over the next 35 years, so I think if we look back from 35 years time to now, uh, it's gone from a factor of uh, five times average earnings to about 12 to 13 times now. Um, if it continues in that same vein with, average house price going up 7.5% and average wages going up 5.5% as it has done over that period, you'd see a median house price of 14.5 million and average earnings of half a million a year. So it's a 29 times average earnings cycle. I'm not saying that that's going to happen, but even with recent reports from late last year suggesting that the median in Sydney in 2050 would be 6.5 million, uh, if it's anywhere between 14 and 6.5, even if it floats between 5 and 7, to then generate a 10% deposit plus stamp duty to get into your first property to, to buy the average house, we think we've got it tough now. How's it going to be in 20, 30 years' time for the next generation? It, it, it so, sounds the, pretty crazy when you put it in those terms, but I can remember you know, not, not terribly long ago that people were saying, oh, well, the, the, the median's not going to be over a million dollars. It's sort of a psychological point that can't really be crossed. Not, you know, People aren't going to be wanting to pay more than a million dollars, but um, that didn't turn out to be the case, did it? So, no, and that's the, you know, a beautiful quote from Albert Einstein, he who, when it comes to compounded interest, he who understands earns it, and he who doesn't pays it, mm. and he you know, claims it's that eighth wonder of the world, it's a, it's a powerful tool if you can tap into it, but 
if you don't and you suffer from it and if you sit back and and don't get into the property market and just sit back and complain year after year then you just continue to you continue to watch it get further and further away from you and just for the power of it compounding year after year and you got into the property market fa- fairly young i mean ha- how important is it to, to jump into the market as, as soon as you can so uh oh look yeah the, the sooner the better um i'd still maintain that the, the quality of the investment so important so i've got a a uh, good friend of mine who I didn't know at the time, but I think he bought his first property at 23. It was a one-bedroom apartment in Queenscliff, but just didn't understand the due diligence process and bought into a building that was riddled with concrete cancer. He'd scrimped and saved and got into his first property years before his mates, and within six months of owning it, he was getting called for $35,000 in special levies. Uh, and it was it sent him on the verge of bankruptcy by 25. Mm, right. So you know he's now 33 years old, doesn't own any property. He's he's scared of it. Yeah. So you know we're looking starting to work through some options now. But it's really you, you might get in early, but you still got to buy well. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that, just, I mean, that's, um, a, that's a real eye opener, isn't it? And, I, and I'm guessing that you know plenty of his mates would be looking at that, thinking you know this is this is maybe a, a fairly typical thing that can happen. Oh, and then you could imagine his um, disappointment now looking at, you know, what a one-bedroom apartment in Queenscliff's worth mm. uh, and seeing the hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in growth that he, he should have been enjoying, um, but he's missed out. So, yeah, getting in early is very important, but still getting in well is, uh, is yeah, is the most important thing. You're, you're obviously big on, on research, but um, planning comes across almost even stronger as part of your sort of marketing material. Why is planning so important? So are we, when we sit down with clients first and ask them why they want to invest, we, we start by, you know, our methodology is based around starting with the end in mind. So where do you want to, where do you want to get to? You, do you want to just, in, you, know, you might be thinking about investing for the sake of investing and you start asking about capital growth and yields and almost every client says the same thing that they want both, uh, but it's sort of starting to tap into why, why do they want one or the other? And then when you start asking the right questions and needing out the right information, then you can start getting a feel of what's really driving them to to do this and take this step. And if it's, you know, when the absolute majority of who we work with are looking for lo- good long-term capital growth, and then when you start throwing around these scary figures of potential uh, median house prices for, for Sydney and, and other cities, then, you know, you can start realising that they need to be doing something, yeah, for them, but also for the next generation. And if they're... Yeah, if they're planning towards that, then at least it just gives them per- some perspective and, and purpose in what they're doing. And, and do you sort of work backwards from, say, you know, a, a, an equity nest egg or retirement sum that, that they have in mind and what they need to do to achieve it? Or, or is, it, is it more of a, a lifestyle thing? How do you sort of come up with an idea about what the end goal is? Yeah, well, we, we're working with financial planners quite um, quite heavily in, you know, putting a plan together with them so it's all, you know, covered across from from their initial financial structure and then and then moving forward from there. And then as for, I guess, the lifestyle that they want to, um, want to achieve, we can put basic sort of forecasts in place and give them a very, very basic sort of snapshot of what the what it could look like with very conservative uh, growth forecasts. But we just, we don't, well, I guess conservative growth rates, but yeah, when it comes to forecasting and things like that, we don't want to, we don't get involved in that side of things. And it's just, um, 
it's easy just to, I guess, yeah, put a very conservative snapshot in front of them, and if they like the look of the picture, then then that's what we can work towards. And your job is to find the, the properties to help them get to that. So yeah, and that's where we really just concentrate on the property side of things. Like we've got, you know, great financial planners and mortgage brokers that we work with and refer to. But you know, when it comes to the finance questions, we just delegate that to the professionals. Any tax questions, we delegate to the accounts that we work with, and then, you know. And as it goes the other way, then any property questions come our way and we just, you know, we specialise in our areas and just keep it simple. Yeah, awesome. Now, you've got obviously a little bit of a background in the UK and, and you've drawn some parallels between the London and Sydney markets when they sort of were really taking off around 2013. What, what did the markets sort of have in common at that time? Uh, we just, yeah, sort of... Oh God, that's time does go fast. Was that almost four years ago? Uh, so at that time, we're seeing both both cities spiking, seeing huge growth that was driven initially by international investment, a lot of it coming from China into both of the cities, but then also, um, yeah, London also had the added uh, demand in the higher end market from from Russian investment. So, but the yeah, residential market had just sort of sat dormant for relatively dormant for quite a few years, and then just sort of yeah, through what we felt was mainly driven by international investment, really got things moving, and then you could see the domestic investors and the domestic owner occupiers jumping on board, and then that really got the market moving, and off it went to yeah, enormous and yeah, one could argue unsustainable growth rates, uh, and then the other thing that was. Um, was also driving it was record lower interest rates. Both countries had the lowest interest rates in the history of both of the countries. I think at oh, I can, around 350 years history for England, I believe. This is three years ago. I put the put the article together, and then Australia I think was 166 years old at that time. Yeah. So you know these are record low interest rates, lowest they've ever been. So money was cheap. A lot of international investment driving the um, driving the growth markets up, and then. Also, interestingly, you know, the rest of the, the countries had just been left behind. Yeah. So, you know, England's really just a, a one-horse race, at least. Uh, Australia's a little bit more diverse with your, your Melbournes and Brisbane's, but it's, uh, yeah, it was just, a, just an interesting time. And then also um, London or England was a lot more progressive with their macroprudential tools that they were implementing from the, from the Bank of England to, to slow down lending. Uh, Australia is, you know, doing that in varying levels through APRA, but you know, and also now, you know, sort of bank to bank. So yeah, no, I just I found it interesting, you know, almost four years ago, and still now it's interesting with the parallels. And it's easy to sort of think, you know, looking at Sydney's double-digit growth over the last couple of years, that you know, it's just an out-of-control market. But it it did really sit still for a long time before the the the, the upturn, didn't it? Well, that's what people forget that. There was eight years of next to nothing and then, um, you know, very marginal growth and then the last three or four years have obviously been explosive. But when you pull the piece of string out over that 10, 11-year period, um, the growth rates aren't that horrifying, that scary. Uh, so, um, you know, and just that's one thing that we look at, you know, the belief is that everything is cyclical. Uh, but in order to, you know, some of those cycles are shorter, some of them are longer, some of them are more, you know, sort of, more gradual and some of them are more aggressive. Yeah, and, and it's funny, you know, we, we, we have the, the negative gearing conversation, we have the, the affordability conversation, you know, really on the back of that crazy growth in the last couple of years. But, you know, that, those sorts of lines of inquiry were, were a bit dormant at the same time the market was really, weren't they? 
Yeah, it's true. So, and everything, that's the thing, everything's so reactive in Australia with, especially with the lending and the government, um, government involvement and all that, I guess, I guess, as it is worldwide. But the, I guess the concern is that at the moment there is, it's not just the old basic economy and basic market that we had, you know, 20 years ago where prices had rise, you'd increase interest rates, slow down growth, and it was just quite an easy seesaw. But now, you know, there's a, there's a fair few fingers pulling the strings of the of the puppets that are that are driving this market, and yeah, one one's got to ask if they're all talking at the same time. So I want to get into to, to your special sauce. How do you select the the regions that you want to in, invest in, and even the, the streets that you're looking to purchase in? Yep. So we, so I guess, more from a macro perspective, picking suburbs. Uh, I've invented a analysis tool about three years ago which are called the yield curve analysis where we can look into any of the over 8,000 given suburbs in Australia and you know then divide them up into the housing market or the unit market and really see where they're at in their growth cycle and just see if it's going to be an appealing proposition for investors because our belief is that investors start and stop all of the growth cycles so we're looking for suburbs, particular suburbs and particular markets that are appealing for those investors that are then going to get in there, start buying, start driving up the prices, but we want to get in as early as possible and and you know and, and jump onto that um, that early growth phase as soon as possible. And how does how does the yield factor into to that analysis? Are you looking for, for I guess increasing yields where, where property prices are staying flat as a bit of a precursor to growth? So essentially, yeah. So we're looking at uh, we don't want to, yeah. We wonder we're not. It's not a yield based, you know, proposition. We're not trying to buy for the yield, but we're just looking for where investors are going to be looking. And you know, as an investor, do you really want to be buying at the end of a growth cycle where the yields might be three percent, or do you want to be buying at the start of the growth cycle where the yields are you know much closer to your your five percent mark? Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah, and then. Yeah, you look back on, you know, even sort of four years ago in, you know, like the, the housing market in Blacktown, for example, four years ago, you'd, you'd buy in there and the yields were, I think, around 5%. Yeah. But now you've had, I think, it's about 66% growth in the last two years in that in that suburb alone. You know, the, the yields now are, at, you know, I think probably 2.8%, 2.9%. So as an investor, do you want to be buying there now or do you want to be buying there three years ago? Yeah, so. and that's a that's a pretty good insight. Obviously, we're we're always looking for for ways for our, our listeners to get a bit of an insight into into the how how the pros select property. So yeah, interesting to to hear how how yield affects you know the potential capital growth. What what about um what about getting down a little bit to the to the pointier end in terms of the streets and even the properties? Is it is it based purely on demographics or what makes you pick one type of property? In, in one street uh, over another. Right, so I guess, yeah, broadly speaking, we're obviously big on the basic fundamentals. So, we, yeah, big thing is to steer clear from, from busy roads and noisy locations. Uh, it might be easier to buy these properties and then you might save a bit of money initially, but yeah, the long-term growth of these locations is, is heavily stifled. So um, I strongly suggest that people steer clear of those. But for us, we... You know, we, we stick to the basic fundamentals with, you know, um, you know, strong um, strong location, close to amenities and, and whatever else. But as for specific streets, uh, you know, most suburbs have got their 
good areas and not so good areas. So it's having that local knowledge of understanding which which areas in the suburbs that you want to be tapping into, realizing uh, which are the better schools, and obviously if you can you know get within sort of walking distance or a, or a short drive to those schools. Even bigger again is transport and accessibility to the city. If you've got something with a walking distance to a train station, we'd love the streets that are near to those but not too close to then get the train noise. Yep. And then breaking it down for specific streets, we uh, a big one for buying on the high side of the streets when we're buying houses. We much prefer to have a, you know, you're buying on the high side of the street, you walk out of your your back door and you've just got, you know, the land graduating upwards away from you. It's much easier to then be able to renovate and extend onto that type of land. Plus, it's much more aesthetically appealing to walk out onto that backyard as opposed to if the, the land's falling away from you and you have to then, you know, if you're trying to extend, then the, the earthworks and, and stilts and all that type of thing are a lot more expensive. So, yeah, just something as simple as that. And then also the streetscape and the street appeal of a, of a home on the high side of the street is, um, is a lot more appealing. Yeah. So, But then we'd also look into... Yeah, and then even looking into orientation and ideally if it's got a, a north-facing backyard for, you know, better um, better accessibility of, um, of winter sun and then also ideally having the master bedroom on the south side so then sort of ideally cooler in, cooler, um, in the summer months. That's probably more of a um, more of a concern in Perth where I started my career where the, uh, yeah. where the summers are, are, are pretty hot. But, uh, yeah, look, even areas of Brisbane that we buy where it gets very, very hot through the summer, it's, um, yeah, if we can sort of buy something that's got the, the master bedroom position on the on the southern side, then at least it's going to be a little bit uh, cooler for sleeping at night. Yeah, that, those are some really interesting in, insights, you know, especially when you're looking at, at, at renovating and extending and, you know, the, the fall of the land and, and that sort of thing. You, you, you mentioned renovation as, as one of your potential you know, arrows in the quiver or one of the, the strategies. Can you talk, us about, uh, talk, talk to us about how that sort of works? Yeah, so we, for clients and also for ourselves, my wife and I support our last most recent property was in October uh, that we then renovated. Uh, but as for, yeah, also for clients, we've got all the trades and necessary specialists at our fingertips for, yeah, for any level of renovation, even up to town planners and things like that for developments. But yeah, for the renovation side of things, we find that when we're buying properties that, that need some love, they, uh, you know, it's less competitive in that market. Uh, compared to buying something that's already renovated, obviously homeowner uh, occupiers or investors can just get in and, and occupy the property immediately. So we find that the unrenovated properties have got a smaller market, which is great for us. We're competing with less people, and then just trying to put something together that's got a bit of an edge. Like if we, you know, most of the homes that we buy in Brisbane are three bed, one bath homes. Obviously, you know, if it's got a second bedroom, fantastic. The, the property that we bought is a three by two in an area that's typically three by ones. And just having, you know, then we also actually bought the house across the road for a client earlier in the year, which is a four by one. So having that extra uh, bedroom is also a big plus. And that helps with then, valuations too, doesn't it? Because, I mean, the, the, the valuers are, are trying to find comparables. And if there, there aren't comparables with the same number of bedrooms, it, it can it can change the dynamics of that valuation, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, and if you, you do the renovation 
well, you know, I mean, and when I say well, I mean as cost-effectively as possible, meanwhile maintaining, you know, the highest level of quality, especially in line with that market. You don't want to be overcapitalizing and spending too much if you're, um, if you're, you know, as, as eventual rental price is only going to be say, you know, three fifty or three seventy a week. You don't want to be um, spending, some, you know, spending at a level that you're expecting to get it to get a thousand dollars a week in rent. So you know, just renovating for the market, and then if you've done it well, and you can look at even refinancing in sort of six or twelve months, like you were just saying, to have that stronger valuation um, to leverage off, fantastic. Yeah. So, so, so I guess you know, it, it, you're looking at properties that have less competition because they're not as aesthetically pleasing, and you're looking at ways that you can inject, you know, a, a relatively small amount of capital. And increase the rent and and potentially the valuation, and then, as you say, revalue and you know replicate perhaps. Exactly. So, and a, another big thing for our property selection is ceiling height. So, you know, to look at a low set brick home that which we don't typically touch. Um, you know, if it's got two point four high ceiling or twenty eight core ceilings. In order to give that more space, no matter how white you paint the ceilings and no matter no matter how good your downlights are, you're never going to give the feeling of space than if you had, you know, 2.55 meter high ceilings. And just as soon as you walk into that space, you've got a much better feel and ambience to it. Then, you know, the only way you could replicate that with the low set brick home is to rip the roof off and lift it. Well. That's just a waste of money. Why not buy better? Buy something that may be a little bit older, that's got a bit more character. It's got higher ceilings. So then, when it comes time to renovate, then you sort of wipe the walls and um, you know repaint everything. It just it feels huge. Uh, and then that's a that that's where we find we can you, you can manufacture a lot of a lot of value compared to you know getting stuck with the low set brick home as an example. You know, there's only so far you can take that renovation. Yeah, I mean that's that's a, a great sort of point for for tenants that it's going to be more attractive for them but but also in the long term i guess at the end you you want an increased value so it's going to be a little bit more attractive to owner occupiers and and valuers as they come in along the way as well yep absolutely so and if you're if you can renovate and it can appeal to both the you know the 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 investor and owner occupier market then then great you know we're not our business or our strategy is never to sort of renovate and flip, but at the same time, you know, if you're renovating to a level that's appealing to both, then you, it's more likely than not your valuer is going to walk in and, and be pretty happy with the result and, and give you the valuation that you're looking for. Well, it gives you that option, doesn't it, either to, to dispose of it and, and do what you'd like with it or to revalue and, and pull the equity. Exactly, and that's what yeah, that's what we preach. Just to yeah, pull the equity out and go again and again and again, and just slowly build that portfolio over time for 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 them and also for the for the next generation. So I was going to ask what areas you're looking at, but obviously you you've referenced Brisbane. Um, are there other areas that you're looking at, and what is it about Brisbane that uh, that you see value in? Yeah, so we I guess our a lot of our analysis is based on cycles, so. We just see that it's yeah. Like we've been buying in Brisbane for three and a half years, so it's um, we still see parts of Brisbane as good buying when we when we make the comparison to other parts of Australia. The other appeal to Brisbane is um, it just it's I guess the sheer size. You know, you look at we use the analogy of a Sydney, Melbourne, or Brisbane. You know, you imagine a big cruise liner going through the ocean compared to a tugboat, which might be a much smaller market like a Darwin. You know, once once a 
cruise liner starts going in its in its path, you've got an idea of which direction it's going a lot better than a, a tugboat that can obviously turn on itself quite quickly. So this is not to say that markets don't move very quickly and, you know, we've seen collapses in other parts of the world, but, you know, you've got a bit better idea of where things are going in the bigger markets, which which appeals to us for Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. But then, obviously, Sydney and Melbourne have had such explosive growth over the last few years. Uh, the Brisbane market it still hasn't had that, and we're certainly not sitting here saying that it will have similar growth, but looking at the averages over the last 20, 30 years of, of growth rates compared to what it's done over the last five years and eight years, it is so far below the historical averages. Um, our belief is that there's still still a fair way to go. And, I mean, sticking with your your metaphor of the cruise ship, obviously there's, there's some inherent problems with the bigger markets as well, isn't there? Because, I mean, you've got, um, you know, you've got the upper decks where there's, you know, affluence and everything's going well, or you've got... Um, the little sections where the chappie from the Titanic was was hanging about. There are what I'm getting at is there are, there are pockets of Brisbane that are doing very well and pockets of Brisbane that that aren't doing very well at all. So, you know, how do you find those parts of the market? Yeah, so we've got that yield curve analysis that we've developed is um is very handy. But the the big thing at the moment of knowing where not to invest is is mainly based around supply levels. So if you can avoid the areas with the higher supply, whether it be in the units market or or the housing market, and then you know looking at how it's performed over the last few years, and certainly the um, our analysis tool that we use is very handy for that. Then you start uh, start getting an understanding of whether it's good buying or whether you've potentially missed the boat. So if it's uh, you know if you've if it's Perform well over the last 20 years at an average of 7.5% year on year, but over the, the last two years it's already jumped up by 25%, then you know, we're probably arguing that there's other areas that we could target that could still get some better, get a better short-term growth for clients. And getting, getting on to supply, um, obviously there are potentially supply problems with, with the unit market, especially in Brisbane and, and even just in general with the amount of stock that can come onto the market in a relatively short time frame. Do you, do you steer completely away from the unit market in, in the places where you're, you're looking at property? Uh, well, it depends on the city. So we buy units or apartments in Sydney, yep. um, in certain parts of Sydney, in the where we you know, sort of the suburbs that we've targeted that are tightly held and More you know don't have the suburbs exactly you know you look out over these suburbs and you don't see towers of 20 30 40 story apartment buildings so you know they're, they're tightly held and and we like those as long as they line up with the other fundamentals our other fundamentals and then yeah like a brisbane we don't touch any apartments there because even the you've got the oversupply in the city but then our agents that we the selling agents that we um that we work with, they're, they're having issues moving moving apartments 8, 10, 12, 15 kilometres out from the CBD. So the whole apartments market is really struggling. Mm. So we just yeah, we just don't touch it. But then we just tap into, the, I guess, the long-term belief of land scarcity and that's why we just buy houses there. You, you also gave a, another insight into your strategy um, just a little while back and that's buying under the median price. Why is that important? Uh, well, we just we don't want to be the front runner on price in a suburb. Like if we're, if you're buying ten percent over the the median for a suburb, yeah, sure, it might be a more you know, a, 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 a more a premier property and whatever else. But we don't want to be the property that has to then pull up 
the other properties to that level would much prefer to be under the median and then getting pulled up. I guess it's um a lot easier to be to, to be pulled up than um having to having to be the one that's um you know pulling someone up else uh, someone else up yourself. So the yeah, if we just keep it simple. If we can buy sort of five ten percent under the median, that'd be that's ideal. That's um that's a great way forward. And then um you know the belief is that even if the market continues to go in a moderate fashion, you're still going to be well ahead. Um, and then that's also buying well under the median. It might need a little bit of love, a little bit of renovation, but you know, for a small investment into renovating, you can then hopefully take it at least to the median, if not above. And then you know you should have some good uh, equity that you've generated to then be able to leverage off and, and buy again. And it comes down to affordability too, doesn't it? Because I mean, there's there's more competition at, at the lower end of the market. So you know, ideally, the more competition you have, the the more opportunity you've got to, to sell at a premium. So sort of thinking of the you know the buyers at a as a pyramid at, at the top, you've got you know these six and ten million dollar properties that, that there aren't a tremendous amount of people that can afford to buy, but sort of getting down towards the the middle and under that median, it's that competition that makes. An attractive investment, isn't it? Is that what you're you're referencing? So yeah, we're referencing probably more on the that competition side because we're not looking to on sell, but we are obviously looking to rent. So the um, you know in those markets, we don't want to we don't like going too cheap. Uh, you know, if you go the further out you go, the lower the historical growth rates, the lower the rates are going to be that your investment's compounding at year in year out. Yeah. So we don't want to be too far out, so it's just finding that sweet spot in the middle, and then also having having it be at a level that it's reasonable to rent. So that's where you're tapping into that low to middle section of the of the rental market in the pyramid that you're talking about, where you've got a really strong long term rental demand in you know with low vacancy rates, so you can rent the property quickly. So if you've always if you've always got that in place, then you know if you do need to on sell to another investor, the demand should be there because you can rent the property. But it's when you're stuck with something that you can't rent out, and then you try and sell it, and then an investor doesn't want to buy it because you're not going to, you're not able to rent it. Yeah. But then you can't actually sell it to an owner occupier because it's not really an owner occupier property. Then you're stuck with this lemon. In in terms of the properties that you're looking at, you, you're obviously you've specified some components of the properties that you're looking at. You know the high ceilings, the number of bedrooms. How important is is the emotional side of property investing, and is that something that you have to overcome with your clients? Yeah, yeah, no, we try and cut that out immediately, to be honest. So, and that's one of the reasons that people should go with buyers agents to invest, uh, especially when it comes to investing, is to cut the emotion out of it. So, you know, a lot of our clients will analyze properties with us, and then their immediate response is, oh, I can see myself living there. So, I think it's a really good investment, but that's not what it's about. It's, it's trying to work out. If the people, you know, your target market, your tenants are going to want to live there, and if they do, then great. Yeah. And that's all you really need to worry about. And just to, I think having a good buyer's agent that can take the emotion out of, a matter of actually out of any process, whether it be buying your your, your home or, um, or your investment, um, you just got to keep the emotions at bay and just, you know, really just go with the data and the numbers because that's what it's all about. Yeah. You know, you're not, you know, you're not looking to feel better about yourself in five or ten years. You're looking to make money. And, and yet, I mean, it all comes down to, to treating it like a business, doesn't doesn't it? I mean, um, is is that sort of the the one part of a, a piece of advice that, that that you would give to to property investors is, is treating it like a business? Um, that's part of it, I guess. My main 
um, suggestion would be just to keep it simple and realize that everything comes back to supply and demand. So, you know, if you can keep it simple and find those areas of limited supply, meanwhile, you know, in those areas that are boasting strong demand for tenants and prospective buyers, then then you should be fine. And obviously, if you can do that in conjunction with being unemotional about it and um, treating it like a business, like you said, then I think you're um, you're going to be going better than most. And hopefully, you'll fall into the category of not being the uh, one of the thousands and thousands of Australians that only buy one property, but um, tap into the the segment that buy multiple. That sounds like a pretty good way to to wrap up there, Paul. How do people get in <laughs> touch with you if they want to get in touch with you? So, uh, yep, so they can just through our website, which is at aquus.com.au, A-Q-U-U-S.com.au. Uh, otherwise, um, yeah, and all our contact details are there. Otherwise, they can, yeah, just reach out to me, um, yeah, obviously um, email or phone, and, um, yeah, we can uh, organise for a coffee on the lawn or shore or, or via Skype if they're elsewhere in Australia. Awesome. Appreciate your time, Paul. Thanks very much for joining us. So, my pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. Cheers.